from God. And it is essentially through repentance. It is not rending our garments, but really rending our hearts. Coming before the Lord in genuine repentance. God, forgive us. Forgive us for our sins. We also notice in the second chapter about the way in which Micah was being told by God to warn the people about this exclusive approach where the religion is vertical. It's about God, God, God. And in the meantime, I am oppressing other people. The people around me are suffering injustice. And again, Micah was essentially uh, condemning those who, who had power in their hands and were now abusing it. True religion moves on two rails. Love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God and love for neighbor. You cannot be claiming to love God whom you don't see and then failing to love people who you see. They are there. You mingle with them on a daily basis, especially brethren in the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we saw how leaders, especially religious leaders, church leaders, can be the cause of God's judgment upon his people. When they especially are the ones who are stubborn against God, they're the ones who are well known for scandals, for sin, for living lives of unholiness. And so that's what we saw there at the end of chapter 3. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruin, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. But thankfully, last week, we saw a complete change when we entered into chapter 4. And the complete change was the, the fact that God was now coming to his people, bringing them great hope. And we saw this from the mountain of the Lord. From the mountain of the Lord. The Lord is coming and basically promising a better day. A day in which there will be unity a day in which there will be security, a day in which so much good will be happening that many people have had to try and come up with some 1,000 years and that that's where it will all happen. It, it can't be happening uh, between the first and the second coming of Christ. Well, I tried to show you last week that indeed it has begun. This is what the church is all about. God is uniting a people that are otherwise terribly disunited. Uh, God is bringing about true worship for himself as people of every nation, language, and tribe are coming together saying, let's go to the God of Israel, this God that he might instruct us in his ways. So we saw there that 
the hope that God was giving to the Israelites at the beginning of uh, the, this particular uh, season is one that he gives to us essentially. It is one that has begun, one that will finally reach fruition when Jesus Christ returns. But it is not to wait for some season after his second coming. Well, today we come to the fifth chapter. And as usual, we will gallop right through it uh, as an entire chapter. What I want you to notice as we begin is that it's really a continuation of chapter 4. It's still God giving promises to his people that, yes, chastisement is coming because of sin. There's no doubt. But I'm not a God who's going to abandon my promises. I'm not one who's going to do that. I'm one who is chastising you now, but I'm promising you a better day that will surely come. And whereas last week it was around the mountain of the Lord, this week it is around the King of the Lord. And hence the title, God's King Will Rise and Conquer. God's King Will Rise and Conquer. Now there's no doubt about it, there is something of that King spoken about in the previous chapter. When we had the words, for instance, in verse 7, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. But this chapter seems to concentrate largely on that same king. So to begin with, in chapter 5, verse 1 down to verse 5, Micah speaks about a king who is born, but is born in weakness. He is born a despised king, but ultimately he is going to be the king that is ideal for his people, the king who will actually carry out the purposes of God as one who is a true shepherd over his people. Let's see that from verse 1 to verse 5. And before we do that, a quick statement. Remember last week I was talking about, you know, the whole millennial views and so on. Again, bear in mind that this king is actually King Jesus, and it is beginning with his first coming. And that's what I kept saying last week, that this is something related largely to the first, the period between the first and second coming. So let's really read that. Namasa your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the point there is chastisement has come. Punishment has come. The, the foreign nation has come. And it has come to bring about the judgment. However, verse 2, but you, but you, that's a contrast. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem was uh, one of the, the smallest towns in Judah. So you, you, it's the kind of place you don't expect much to come out of there. And then he says, you, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That last part, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, is saying that this ruler who's going to be born in Bethlehem, who's going to come out of Bethlehem, that's not the beginning of his life. He, he, he is pre-existent on this occasion. It is one who is from ancient of days. In other words, from eternity, he is going to come on this occasion. Now, most of you will know that this is the famous text that we find in Luke chapter, um, Matthew, sorry, chapter 2. So if we can just quickly go there. Matthew chapter 2, when uh, the, uh, the chief priests were providing an answer uh, specifically to Herod the king when the wise men were asking where this king would be born. So let me begin from verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and they've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and we quote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, bottom line is that the people of Israel were Believing God for a king. A king who had been prophesied as one who would come and that he would arise out of a little town called Bethlehem. And that was their hope which they were able to pass on to Herod. And in the process, Herod 
pass it on to the wise men from the east, but as it turned out, the Lord ensured that the return journey was not through Jerusalem. The point that I want to emphasize there again is just how true the scriptures are. That, that book on your laps, it's, it's almost incredible that it should be so precise. This cannot be an accident that so many hundreds of years earlier it would pinpoint the town in which this king, coming king, would be born. And he was born in Bethlehem. Almost by accident, because of a demand that was put upon the Jews for them to go through a census. And that's how he found himself, rather his mother and her husband, found themselves in Bethlehem giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not plan it. They were not saying, because the scripture says this, let's go and do it. No. But it was indeed God's doing. And remember, if you said, let's think of Lusaka, for instance. If you said something like, you know, the next president of Zambia is going to come from Lusaka, of course. But if you said it's going to come from Shangombo, that has to be prophecy. You see what I mean? <laughs> okay, I hope there's nobody from Shangombo here. But that's the point. It's, it's a little insignificant place. And yet, it's what was fulfilled. But let's go on. Because verse 3 down to verse 5 tells us about this same king. And it is referring to him coming to really usher in the new covenant. Look at this, verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Let's process this. It shouldn't be very difficult. He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. In other words, there's going to be a certain time in history when essentially that chastisement comes to an end and a new phase begins. And in that new phase, the rest of his brothers, in other words, those who are God's people, but are outside this immediate family, will now come and join the people of Israel. You can't miss the meaning of this, especially today when you are already in the new covenant. And then it puts it this way, in the words that Jesus repeats in John 10 and verse 10. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There again, you might want to think, okay, it's in another period. But as I said to you last week, Jesus himself said that all authority, all power has now been given to me. All power in heaven and on earth. In other words, the whole earth, all power has now been given to me. So to all the ends of the earth, he is now king. Now, obviously, that kingship will be realized more and more and will finally be seen in his second coming. But he has begun to reign as the mediatorial king, especially over his people. And finally, at the beginning of verse 5, you have to agree that the verses were inserted afterwards. But the beginning of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. That statement, I think all of us will try and remember it from Ephesians. We we're preaching there a few months ago. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, are now one, their brothers have come in to the people of Israel and has broken down in his flesh, in other words, in his person and in his death, the dividing wall of hostility. This king who has come, has come to bring all of us together into one people under one shepherd, born in Bethlehem. Can you believe? the precision with which these prophets were speaking. And I want to repeat, this is not 25 years before Jesus is born. This is hundreds of years, hundreds of years, maybe around 800 years, safely speaking. Wow. But let's go on. Because he now speaks about the way in which this king is going to attack the world that is arrayed against him and his people, the very ones that God was using to chastise his people, this king is going to come and attack them and deliver his people. Verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Notice Assyria here. I will comment on it in a few moments. They shall shepherd the people of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The point that I want you to notice is, uh, as I already said, the Assyrians had already come. They had already conquered 10 
of the 12 tribes. So the fear now was that they were going to come against Judah as well and against Jerusalem. So he is using the word Assyria, really speaking in terms of these great powers that are outside Judah, that they're going to come. So it is really a, a general term that is being used because that's what the people knew at that time, that these were a power that has already begun to ravage the nation of Israel, and consequently, they would be the ones coming. His main point there is not so much about the attack, but about the way in which this attack will be reversed by this king, God's king. And he will do so by uh, using the shepherds and the princes that are there. In other words, he's going to be like a, a, a general who is marshalling his troops. That's the way he's going to conquer. And the, the emphasis there is not so much on the men as on the abundance of the men. That is not going to have a shortage of soldiers to fight for him. And hence the phrase there, we will raise against him seven shepherds, which is a number for completion, and then eight princes of men, eight now being more than enough, more than the number that is required. So this king will have enough soldiers to accomplish the defeat of Assyria, the defeat of uh, Nimrod, as we notice here. And as he does that, he comes to deliver his own people. And therefore, the world will be defeated by this king. For Israel, they were obviously reading it wrongly. Remember what I said last week? That you see, a prophet looked at a distance. And so he was seeing the events almost as though they're going to happen on successive days. Like a journey. You remember the example I used? That you, you look at two hills when you are driving and you think they're next to each other. But when you finally get to the first hill, you discover, ah, ah. That other is <laughs> it's quite some distance away. You know, I remember the visit I once made to Katete. And uh, when I got there, the, the gentlemen were saying to me, I was asking them where uh, the particular place I was looking for was, which is where our church plant was. And they would say, yeah, yeah this tree you are seeing here, yeah, this tree, <laughs> you would have arrived. And yeah, I walked and walked and walked and walked, realizing it's quite a distance. And when I go to the next one again, the next one was saying, yes, yeah, just this tree here. By the second time I was defeated, when the next one said this tree, I got on a bicycle, taxi, because I realized that there are distances. These villagers, they count in hours, mere counting in minutes. 
So that's the way it was with, with the prophets. They, they, they were looking almost as though these things are just next to each other, when really there is quite a distance between the two. So when they are being told that this king is going to come in Bethlehem, although the statement is fairly clear that he is going to be a weak and despised individual to begin with, their eyes just glossed over that detail, glossed over that detail. Because what they are hearing is that he is going to then marshal the troops and defeat these enemies. And so, when now a savior is given to them who comes in weakness, born in a cow shed, they reject him altogether. They reject him altogether. Because as far as they are concerned, he's supposed to come and defeat the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Medes, the Romans, whoever they might be who come after that is coming to defeat them militarily. And Jesus did not come in that way. He came to bring about spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom. And I want us to see this from verse 7 going down to the very end. It's spiritual accomplishment primarily. So let's see that, first of all, from verse 7 to verse 9. And by the way, that's, that was God's ultimate aim. God's aim was not to, to end up with some kind of physically glorious nation of Israel while they're still worshipping their, their idols and bowing down to them and so on. That was not his goal. His goal was to establish his rule, his reign in their hearts that they might come back and genuinely worship him. That was his goal. And you see it in this second half of this chapter. First of all, he mentions the fact that the remnant of Israel would be among the nations. They would be um, spread out among the nations. But notice how he mentions the fact, we'll see it in a moment, that they were going to have this positive spiritual influence among the people. Verse 7. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. The point there is the, that there will be as showers on the grass. There will be as dew from the Lord. There will be a people that are bringing true spirituality wherever they are, scattered wherever they are. This is going to be the effect they will have among the peoples where they will be. And as a result of that, they were going to be influential. They were going to be impactful. Now, I know the impact we will notice in a moment in verse 8 and verse 9 looks like it's physical, like they will be destroying people, 
But really, it is the fact that they will be destroying the false religions which are there. So let's read verse 8 down to uh, verse 9. And the remnant of Jacob, the same one that has been mentioned, shall be among the nations, which we've already seen, in the midst of many peoples. And notice how they will be. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. Now, obviously, in the understanding of the, the Jews who are about to be taken into captivity, they would be thinking primarily in terms of, okay, so we will get out there and we are going to plunder the enemies, physically plunder them, and so forth. When, as we shall notice in a few moments, that's not what God has in mind. Yes, the Israelites, when they went into uh, the promised land, that's what they did. They, they, they killed the people that they found there, and they took over their land. But remember, this is now new covenant understanding. And God is not saying that his people, wherever they are, they're now just going to be destroying people. Rather, what they are destroying is false religion and establishing true religion. And in case you are wondering about that, let's quickly read the rest of this chapter. So, when you read the first part, you think, yes, it's still just physical war destroying people. In that day, okay, so it's the same period, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will, and I want you to notice this phrase, cut off, cut off, cut off, cut off, throughout this period, this period throw down, uh, destroy, and so on. I want you to notice that. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. But now, notice what is really happening. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your curved images and your pillars from among you. So you are still alive. But these Asherah poles are the ones that I am cutting off. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out, notice, your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations, notice, that did not obey. So this is a spiritual war that God is undertaking to establish himself as the only true God 
And he is doing it primarily through his people as they now belong to this people of Israel and they are scattered among the nations. You're sitting there and you're saying, yes, that's the church. That's exactly what we are doing in the new covenant. We are sending missionaries. And when missionaries came here to Africa, what did they find? They found us worshipping idols in the form of huge mountains and hills and trees and so forth. They didn't come in and wipe out Africa. They didn't. But hey, look around now. Where are these? Where you go, you are finding churches established. You go into the villages, yes, you will find a few of them hanging around, but largely you are going to find God's people worshipping the true God of heaven. In other words, when you read these passages with New Testament spectacles, you are not waiting for some millennium somewhere where King Jesus is coming and then he is somehow with some troops going, destroying some nations everywhere that are not listening to him or obeying him in that specific period. He has begun, brethren. And we are the troops that are meant to serve his cause to establish his rule that where there are these false religions, they will be cut off. They will be destroyed. He will establish himself as king of kings and lord of lords. Now granted, as I hope to mention here in a few minutes, the people in the days of Micah did not fully comprehend what was being said here. In fact, even the prophet himself did not fully understand what he was seeing, what he was being told, what he was now articulating to the people. He was articulating the truth because it's God's truth, but it does not mean he understood everything that he was speaking about. Let me hurry on to close and put it this way. First of all, God's plans for his people should, as I said last week, give us great confidence despite the sad times in which we live. Should give us great confidence. God's plans for his people. And as we've seen from this chapter, God will use insignificant people, insignificant towns to accomplish his grand purposes. Never look down on what God is doing. The people may be apparently insignificant, 
But if God has determined that through them I am going to carry out my purpose, watch this space. Watch this space. Now for the people of Judah, obviously listening to Micah, they were saying, okay, okay, okay. So judgment is coming. But God is going to restore us and we will defeat all these nations that are over us. All of them are going to defeat them. But again, for those of you who were here last week, that was their major disappointment because when they were restored, they were still under captivity. They were still under captivity. They were back in the promised land, but they were back in the promised land under the Medes and the Persians, they were still having to pay tributes to these kings. And even after the Medes and the Persians passed and the Greek Empire came in and the Romans came in, they were still under these colonizers. They were still under them. And that's one reason why even Herod was worried that perhaps this is now the king who is going to physically, militarily overthrow me. And of course, the Romans whom I am serving at the moment. And that's why he wanted him dead. So you understand the mindset of the Jews and we shouldn't blame them too much because they were genuinely under captivity they, they had no way they could really understand the new covenant as we understand it today. And that's the very reason why people like uh, uh, Paul would have been upset, so upset about the people of the way as to begin persecuting them. He, he had this Jewish understanding of the Old Testament and saw those claims of Jesus and the apostles and others as blasphemy and wanted to destroy them until the Lord opened his eyes. So he was able to look back into this Old Testament now and see that actually that Jesus is our peace. He's our peace, that same Jesus. And he wrote it down for the Ephesians. The point is, brethren, that God will chastise his people for their stubborn sin and idolatry. Make no mistake about it. That's what the Old Testament is teaching over and over again. That when God's people, and we can even throw in the church as well, when God's people become stubbornly sinful, and idolatrous, stubbornly, his judgment falls. But it's never to destroy them completely. Never. It is for the purpose of chastisement. It is painful. Chastisement is painful. But I want to repeat it is not to destroy them. Rather, it is so that his purpose 
of redemption, his glorious purpose of redemption, may continue to the victorious end. That's really what we are seeing even as Micah is speaking here. In other words, there are still the glorious and gracious promises of God. Glorious and gracious. And basically all they are saying is this, repent, repent. I still want to use you, but repent. Turn from your sin, and I will give you a glorious day. Get rid of these idols. And in our case, our idols are not Asherah poles. They are not little altars that are in our backyards. Our idols these days are, are things like your career. Easily turn it into an idol. It is in terms of uh, money. We, we easily turn money into an idol. It is in terms of our possessions. We easily turn our possessions into idols. It could be in terms of our very families. We can easily turn our families into idols. It could be in terms of our entertainment, as you very well know. Sport, football, is easily an idol. There are people who will want to watch AFCON finals instead of go to church and worship. Very easily. They don't even, they have no pangs of conscience whatsoever. Those are the idols. And when Christians stubbornly hang on to those, God wants to kick them out so that he reigns alone. So that his people can clear everything out and make him all in all. And be sure he will win. And God will do so through his faithful remnant. His faithful remnant. He's going to do so. He's doing it slowly but surely across history. They are paying a very dear price. Many of them have died in the process across history to plant the rights of King Jesus in various lands, but ultimately the cross wins, and it will win because God's king, who has already arisen, is going to conquer. Amen? Thank you.